we'll start at verse uh, 21 and we'll read through 32, the end of the chapter. Now hear God's word. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, the great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Grass withers, the flower fades, God's word stands forever. Well, will you pray with me as we consider God's word today together? Our Father, we come to you as always asking for your assistance, for your help. As we come before your holy word, would you illuminate its meaning to our minds? Would you help us to understand all that you have revealed here and its importance and its significance to us? Father, would you bless us with understanding and would you use your word to convince us of your goodness, of your holiness, of your mightiness and of your mercy? And Father, would you use your word as the double-edged sword that it is and cause it to search our hearts? And to tune our hearts, Father, towards gratitude to you. Help us to understand who it is that we are in Christ Jesus. Help us to understand what it is that you have done in pouring out your spirit upon us. And Father, help us to understand how it is that we ought to live. For the sake of your glory, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of eternity. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today, as we continue on in our study of the book of Joel, we're going to narrow our focus in this book this morning to the five verses here at the end of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. As we saw last time, that we were in chapter 2 together last week, the theme of this book of prophecy in the book of Joel has now begun to swing in chapter 2 from being focused on that historic disaster of the great locust plague that devastated Judah in Joel's day to then being focused on the great blessings that God was going to lavish on Judah in the wake of that disaster. And so all of the lamenting and mourning that had come as a result of the catastrophe that all of them had endured because of the locusts shifted then, right? And gave way to rejoicing as we saw last week, which, which came as a result of God's promise to lavish his people with abundant blessings, to restore all that had been destroyed and taken away from them. 
And so now in verse 28 of chapter 2, we see that the focus again takes a very decided shift, but this time the shift is in terms of time. We've already seen that, that what had happened and what was happening in Joel's day because of this locust plague, all of that catastrophe was pointing ahead to the future, to an even greater day of calamity called the day of the Lord when God would pour out ultimate judgment on the nations and also provide ultimate redemption for his people in the new heavens and the new earth. We've already seen that here now with verse 28 of chapter 2. The, the future focus comes to dominate the rest of the book all the way to the end of the book at the end of chapter 3. And in these five verses that I want to look at with you together today, God is highlighting one massive blessing that he would pour out on his people sometime in Joel's future. So remember to last week, last time we saw in verses 17 to 27 here of Joel chapter 2, we saw how God was calling the people of Judah to rejoice because in the abundance of his steadfast love, God was preparing to, to pour out blessings for them in an abundant and lavish and satisfying way. Remember, in, in contrast to the brutal experience of suffering that they'd been enduring. He said, and we saw last week, that he was going to do several things. He was going to remove the northerner from them. Remember, the invading locusts would be removed and they would be no more a plague upon Judah. And then he said he was going to send an abundance of grain and wine and oil. All the things that the locusts had destroyed would be restored and restored in a way that would cause the storehouses and the vats to overflow with lavish abundance. And God said that he would remove from Judah the reproach that had come upon them from all of the pagan nations around them, right? All the, all the unbelievers who were taunting them and saying, where is your God now? God would answer all of the cries of his people and lavish them with love and with blessings and take away all their reproach and remove all their shame. Because that's who he is, we saw last time, right? In the, in the fullness of his steadfast love and mercy, he's a God who deals graciously with his people. Verse 13, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster when people cry out to him for mercy. That's who he is. And so now, in these verses here at the end of chapter 2, Having said that he's going to do all of that for Judah in that time that Joel was living, this same merciful and gracious and loving God now shows how all of those blessings that he was going to pour out on, on Judah in Joel's day were all foreshadowings of another great future blessing that God was determined and had purposed to pour out which would pave the way for the day of the Lord and for the final culmination of all of God's plans and purposes for this present world that we live in and for eternity, in fact, in the world that is to come. And that great outpouring that he speaks of here was not like the other outpourings of his goodness that he had promised to Judah that we saw last week. Here he's He's talking about an outpouring, but not, not an outpouring of rain from the skies that would cause the crops to grow, like we saw last week in verse 23. And it wouldn't be like an outpouring of the grain and the wine and the oil, like those verses spoke of. Here now, God speaks of a coming, abundant, massive outpouring of His Spirit. Of His Spirit, and He means the Holy Spirit. And it shall come to pass afterward, God says, after all that has happened in Judah would happen, after all of the calamity, after all of the restoration and blessing, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he says that when he does, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now that is a huge 
massive promise, and it has absolutely enormous implications beyond anything the, the Old Testament saints of Joel's day could, could possibly even imagine. And as we'll see here today, it's, it's really not until the further revelation of God in the New Testament scriptures that we come to understand the full significance of this promise of God to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Now, of course, having said that, they couldn't quite fathom, they couldn't quite understand the fullness of what God meant there. But having said that, the people of the Old Testament did have some understanding of who the Holy Spirit was and what it meant that God would pour His Spirit out because there had been outpourings of the Spirit all throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God had been revealed in the Scriptures as far back as the second verse of Genesis chapter 1, where it's revealed that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters and was, was, was instrumental in the creation of the world itself and in forming together all that God made into the present heavens and the present earth in the beginning. And then all throughout the Old Testament... God the Holy Spirit reveals Himself. God the Holy Spirit is spoken of and recorded, working through the history of Israel in ways that were absolutely central to their identity as the people of God, as distinct from all of the other people in the world. God the Holy Spirit was working in ways that, that were central to the definition of what it meant for Israel to be the unique chosen people of God. And that's the lens that we've got to look through today in order to get a sense of, of what these people in Joel's day would have understood when God said, I'm going to pour out my spirit in a way that transcends anything I've ever done before. And there's no way that we can take the time that we would need just in the brief time we have today to look at every single reference to the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. Whole books and series of books have been written on that. But there are a couple of, of kinds of ways that I want to look at today that, that the Holy Spirit is spoken of in the Old Testament that are crucial for us to understand in order to have a sense of this promise of God here at the end of Joel chapter 2. One of the primary ways that the Holy Spirit, that the, that the second person or the third person rather of the Trinity, that the Spirit of God is referred to in the Old Testament has to do with His coming on certain people. That's the language that the Old Testament Scriptures use. The Spirit of God came upon them or filled them or was poured out upon them on certain individuals at certain times in order to equip them and in order to empower them with divine power, supernatural power for certain particular tasks, things that God wanted them to do. So we can think, for example, about Jephthah in the book of Judges in chapter 11. It says in verse 29 of Judges chapter 11 that the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh came upon Jephthah and that he was then divinely enabled to strike down the Ammonites and subdue them before the people of Israel. He was given an ability by God to do something that he would otherwise have not had the ability to do in a human sense, in a natural sense, according to earthly powers. Or think about um, Bezalel in Exodus chapter 35, the son of Uri from the tribe of Judah. It says there in Exodus that he was filled with the Spirit of God, and it says he was given a divinely, supernaturally supplied skill and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship. So he, he, wasn't, he wasn't just like naturally talented people are in this world. We all know people who just seem to be really, really good at stuff, right? But, but still it's in a natural way. It's according to a human capacity. Bezalel was given something more. He was given a, a special divinely enabled ability to understand the way things work and how to put things together in a way that only God could understand and help him understand. And it was a result of, of being filled with the Spirit of the Lord. And so Bezalel was used specifically by God to be able to teach other people and lead other people 
in the building of the tabernacle of the Lord, which we're told in Scripture was patterned after the dwelling place of God in heaven. Bezalel was able to understand how to build this, this tabernacle for the worship of God that, that looked like and resembled and was patterned after the very dwelling place of God in heaven. So again, empowered by God to lead and to do things with supernatural ability because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And of course, you can think of somebody like Samson, right? Again, in the book of Judges, it says again, he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he was given absolutely supernatural strength and ability, far beyond any natural human capacity so that he could fight on behalf of God's people and defend them against God's enemies and vanquish the enemies of God. He was able, remember, to defeat a thousand Philistine warriors all by himself, just using the jawbone of a donkey as a weapon. Now, no, no normal human could do something like that. No normal human would, would have the strength or the endurance to be able to fight off that many enemies all by himself with any kind of weapon, let alone just the jawbone of a dead animal. When Samson was in the city of Gaza in Judges chapter 16, this is one of my favorite stories, they saw that he was in there and they planned to do something. They planned to surround him and, and ambush him and kill him in the morning, but in the middle of the night, Samson got up and he, and he went, he was going to head out of the city, and he grabbed hold, it says, of the city gate. Now, when you think of ancient city gates, you can't just think of a, a door like this, or even a big, tall, heavy oak door on a house. You have to think about a, a thing that was 10, 20 feet tall, made out of big, thick oak timbers, and, and shod with, with iron bars, and it was suspended by by these giant pillars on either side. And it says that Samson took a hold of the gate of the city. It was, it was made to be strong and heavy to repel invaders, see, so, so that nobody would be able to lift it up or be able to break it down easily. It would, it would protect the city, this gate. And Samson grabs a hold of it, it says, and lifted it up with the pillars and all and the bars and all and put it on his back and hauled it off while all the people are just watching in, in shock, in awe, and hauled it off and climbed up a hill and then dumped it and then went on his way. That's how strong the Spirit of God enabled Samson to be when the Spirit of God was poured out upon him. And so the point, of course, is that, that the Spirit of the Lord being upon him it empowered Samson to do extraordinary things in the service of God, supernatural things in the service of God and his people. But I want you to listen this morning that those kinds of things that the Spirit of God enabled Samson to do were in fact just foreshadowings of an even greater thing that the Spirit of God was going to do. So those kinds of people in the Old Testament, and it wasn't because of anything that was special about them, it wasn't because of anything that was especially holy about them. Samson wasn't a very good guy. He was in Gaza because he was sleeping with a prostitute. He, he was a fleshly man, and in spite of him, the Holy Spirit empowered him to do something. Not because of anything special about these people. The Holy Spirit of God was poured out on them and, and, and enabled them to do things for the service of God that were singularly unique. And because they did that, those people tended to become leaders in the community of God's people in Israel. Prophets were filled with the Holy Spirit of the Lord, we're told all throughout the scriptures, and given the ability to speak the very words of God to other people. Not just to think or speculate or imagine or deduce but to actually speak the very words of God to other people. Kings were given a special anointing by God, an anointing of the Holy Spirit to mark them off as God's chosen leader of the people. David speaks of this anointing in Psalm 51 when he's confessing his sin to the Lord and he's, he's pleading with God not to take away the, the presence of the anointing Holy Spirit on him. Even Saul 
before David. Saul, Saul wasn't a good king in the end, was he? And yet in spite of his weaknesses, in spite of his failures, in spite of his ungodliness and unfaithfulness, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and Saul found himself at the beginning of his tenure as a king, found himself prophesying, found himself speaking the word of God, and everyone who knew him said, what's come over him? They saw something radically different about Saul. They said, has he become one of the prophets? They recognized that whatever was going on with Saul didn't come from Saul. It came from God. It wasn't according to any powers in this world. It was the result of the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. And apart, again, from anything unique about Saul, in any human and natural sense, the Holy Spirit, being upon him, marked him out in order to be a leader among God's people. And this is the kind of thing, see, that, that Joel and that the people of God in Joel's day understood to be the result of the Spirit of the Lord being poured out upon or within someone. It causes a change in that person that is fundamentally different than anything in this world can account for that can only be attributed to the supernatural power of God. And then add to that understanding what the scriptures in the Old Testament go on to reveal to us in terms of a, a prophetic anticipation of something that God said he was going to do on an even greater scale, on an even broader scale in the days that were future to the Old Testament nation of Israel, something that would make even Samson pale by comparison to, something that would make all of the prophets who spoke the words of God pale in comparison to. God says those things were spectacular in a visible and outward sense, but they were really only in anticipation of the real work that I'm going to do when I pour out my spirits. Think, for example, about the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied during Judah's absolute darkest days, right? When the Babylonians had come, carried off the people of God into slavery, and then just wiped out the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, remember? And, and then they put most of the remaining inhabitants of the city to the sword. It was a catastrophe. And Ezekiel lived through that, was part of that, was, was himself hauled off to Babylon and lived in exile for the rest of his life, and prophesied. And all of that happened, remember, because God revealed, because of the long-standing and persistent and unrepentant sin of the people. It was God's judgment that had fallen on them in the form of the Babylonian captivity. And, of course, God prophesied that there would be an end of that season of judgment, a time when they'd be able to go home and rebuild their city and rebuild their homes and rebuild their temple, as in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. And God proclaimed through Ezekiel that there would come a time when he would pour out his spirit in a new way, in a unique way, that wouldn't just empower certain individuals to serve him in certain ways like Samson had or Jephthah had or, or Elijah had. But that something qualitatively different even than that was going to happen. Something supernatural. And it would happen in even broader scope, not just on one or two people, but on a lot of people. And so God said through Ezekiel that there was coming a day when he would pour out his spirit in all of his people, not just a select few, not just certain ones. And the result wouldn't just be a supernatural ability to do outwardly impressive things like Samson did. It would, in fact, be a whole new supernatural life and life transformation for all of the people upon whom he poured out his spirits. These are God's words in Ezekiel. Chapter 36, I will put my spirit, my Holy Spirit, within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my law. 
you've sinned, you've been persistent in sin, you've been unrepentant in sin, and that's why this whole calamity has fallen on you, because your hearts are dead and hard and cold towards me, and I am going to pour out my spirit in a way that does something even more impressive than Samson hauling that gate up the hill. It's going to make your dead souls alive. It's going to soften your hard, dead, cold hearts towards me, God says, and give you a supernatural life where you are now able to obey me. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall become clean from all your uncleanness. Not just forgiven, but sanctified, made holy, qualitatively different on the inside in a supernatural way that nothing in this world can account for. From all your idols will I cleanse you, God said. I will give you new hearts. And new spirits will I put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh a heart that is beating and pulsing with a love for God that wants to glorify Him and that is able now to be able to keep His commandments and do what honors Him where a dead heart can't any more than a cadaver in the morgue can get up and go out to lunch with you if you went down and invited it. You go into the morgue and you say, hey, it's, it's dry and stinky and dusty and depressing in here, Let's go out into the sunshine and have a nice day together. That corpse can't do anything about it, right? There's no ability. And that's every heart that is dead in trespasses and sins. No human being, spiritually speaking, is able to obey God, to follow God, to trust God, to honor God. Because of that spiritual condition of deadness, unresponsiveness to him. And God says, that's what I'm going to change. Even as much as Jesus brought Lazarus to life and out of that tomb, God says, I will pour out my spirit and create new life, new hearts, and a supernaturally new ability to live for my glory and to live in my presence forever. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God revealed that this coming day when he would do this, when he would put his spirit in all of his people, and, and, and it would result in them having new spirits, new hearts, new spiritual lives, that that would coincide with God making a new covenant with them that would be completely different and better than the old covenant that they had lived under since Moses and Mount Sinai. God speaks of it in Jeremiah 31. It's going to be different. It's going to be better, this new covenant, in, in at least three important ways. Listen to what God says. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The first thing better about the new covenant is it won't be able to be broken by the people because it will be guaranteed by the grace of God alone. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So you see, in the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses back in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai, God gave them his law, but he gave it on tablets of stone. So they knew what it was, but the problem was their hearts were dead and hard and they couldn't obey God from an inward heart of love towards God. So they continually broke his law over and over and over. That's what led to the Babylonian exile, right? But in the new covenant, he says, I'm going to write my law within you. I'm going to write it on your hearts so that you'll want to obey me. 
because your hearts will be pulsing with love towards me. You'll be changed. You'll be, you'll be made supernaturally and spiritually alive on the inside. In the old covenant that God made through Moses, the, the people who belonged to that covenant had to exhort one another and teach one another and say to one another, you know what, you need, you need to know God. You need to love God. You need to not just do things outwardly in order to avoid being punished. You need to love him and know him on the inside because most of them didn't because their hearts were dead towards him. Remember that? That was the message of Hosea. A lot of times the people were, were doing the right stuff in a kind of mechanical outward way, right? Going to the temple, making sacrifices, observing all the ceremonies, but inwardly they didn't love God. And God was like a jealous husband, illustrated through Hosea's marriage to the prostitute, right? They didn't know him personally, intimately, relationally. They didn't love him with any kind of affection like a, a faithful wife has for her husband. Their hearts were cold. And that led to all kinds of sin on the outside. But in the new covenant, God says that no one who is actually in this new covenant would have to be told to know God because they would all know him. By definition, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. If they've actually been engrafted into this covenant relationship with me, it's because they've been made alive and given new hearts and new spirits that they would not just understand what to do outwardly, but that they would do it from hearts that love me and want to be faithful to me. In the old covenant that God made through Moses, there were all of these ongoing perpetual sacrifices that had to be made over and over and over because, because the, the sin of the people was ongoing and perpetual and it had to be atoned for every single day. But in the new covenant, God said, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more because there would be one single sacrifice sufficient for all of the sin of all of the people for all time that would be the basis of their being forgiven to the uttermost and related to God in adoption as sons and daughters of the king forever. So, see, the new covenant, the better covenant and its blessings wouldn't depend on what people who were dead in their sins could do in order to obtain those blessings or, or in order to lose those blessings. It would all depend on what God himself would do. It would be a covenant of pure grace on God's part, and it would involve the, the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of God the Son, and it would involve the pouring out of God the Holy Spirit within all of God's people, giving them new spirits, new hearts, new spiritual lives, being made to be new creations, supernaturally empowered by Him to live for God's glory and to live with Him forever, eternally. That's what's better than Samson. That's what's better than Jephthah. That's what's better than any of the people who were empowered by God to do outwardly extraordinary things in the Old Covenant. What's better and what God's ultimate spiritual purpose is is to create new life on the inside that dwells with him forever. All of that, see, is, is what Joel's prophecy is also a big part of. We don't know exactly when Joel lived. We don't know exactly when he prophesied in the history of the Old Testament, but most likely it was, it was before the time of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. It was before that Babylonian exile. It was before their prophecies of the new covenants and the life-transforming power that be poured out on all of God's people. Joel's prophecy here probably came first, before those other ones, and in anticipation of those great prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. But it's no less important. Listen, just like the locust plague, as we've seen, just like the locust plague was kind of a, a portent, a foreshadowing, of a far greater coming day of God's judgment that would be unleashed on the whole world 
and not just a, a part of the world. So the blessings that God poured out on the land right after the locust plague, the restoration of the wine and the grain and the oil, they foreshadowed a far greater outpouring of God's blessing. Just like the land was parched and thirsty for the rains to be poured down in Joel's day so that new crops could start to grow, much more importantly, the sinful hearts, the very souls of God's people were dry and parched and thirsty and dead and ready for the outpouring of His Spirit and life-giving and life-transforming power. And that's what God is prophesying that He's going to do. So once again here, and in, in a much, much more profound way, even than what we saw last week, Joel is speaking in terms of lavishness, right? He's portraying something that is absolutely and inconceivably abundant here. When, whenever it is that God's going to pour out His Spirit and, and cause this new harvest of spiritual life to begin to grow, it's not just going to be a drizzle of God's Spirit, kind of like what was going on just before church today, right? It's going to be a downpour, a deluge, not even like we experienced in January, but more like Noah's day. A deluge of God's Spirit, and the effects of it are what Ezekiel and Jeremiah are speaking about in their prophecies. New hearts, new spirits, new lives, new ability now from the inside to live for the glory of God. To live for the kingdom of God and to live with the person of God for all of eternity. Zechariah also, listen to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. I will pour out my spirit on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace. And there will be pleas for mercy so that when they look on me and on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then a few verses later he says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from all their sin and uncleanness. And that is, that is an absolutely beautiful reference to the work of Jesus Christ who was pierced and to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit leading to new hearts and new lives for those for whom Jesus died so that they would look upon him with love, mourning his death and the sin that caused it, causing them to be forgiven and cleansed from all of their spiritual uncleanness. Just like the rains that God poured down on the, the dead and desolate land of Judah after the devastation of the locusts, just like those physical rains produced abundant life and overflowing grain and wine and oil, so the outpouring of God's Spirit on spiritually dead and dry and desolate hearts would yield an abundant harvest of new life and a love for the one who loved them enough to be pierced for their transgressions and a harvest of growing righteousness and holiness that glorifies Him. And again, we notice not just the qualitative difference between what the outpouring of His Spirit will bring, but also the scope of this great prophesied outpouring of the Spirit of God. It won't just be local, and it won't just be isolated to one or two individuals. The scope would be far greater than anything they could experience all throughout the Old Testament times where the pouring out of God's Spirit was limited to kings, to prophets, to select people like Bezalel or, or Samson or Elijah. Here Joel says the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And the New Testament will go on and make it clear that what that means is on men, on women, on Jews, on Gentiles, on people from every social strata, slaves and free people, People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. When the Spirit of God is poured out in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy here, it'll affect the whole planet, 
globally. Joel speaks to that extensiveness here in verses 28 and 29, where he says that when this outpouring of the Spirit comes, it's going to be evidenced by, the, the, the way you'll know that it's happening is by this initial evidence of, of the prophesying of men and women and children, even their sons and their daughters, and, and its impact will be, will be felt universally between men and women, between male and female servants even. It won't just be for the upper class. Again, the core idea here is no limitations in terms of age, in terms of sex, in terms of social status, whatever. And of course, as you read this prophecy and you listen to Joel referencing here What's going to happen when the Holy Spirit is poured out in this unique way? And you, you recognize that he's talking about prophesying as an indicator of when this great spiritual outpouring had actually begun. That brings us straight into contact with Peter's words in Acts chapter 2. We studied Acts not too long ago together. The Messiah had come. God himself, incarnate in human flesh. He had lived a holy life. He had been pierced on the cross. He had been crucified. He had laid down his life for sinners. And then he had been raised supernaturally from the dead. He had conquered death. He had vanquished the curse. And then he had with his disciples, looking on, ascended on a cloud into heaven with the promise that he would return in the same way that he'd left. And then historically, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Joel's prophecy was marvelously fulfilled as the Holy Spirit was poured out right there in Jerusalem, exactly as Joel said it would, and it resulted in exactly what it said he would right there in Joel chapter 2. People started prophesying, they started speaking in different tongues and languages that they'd never learned to speak in before, and the word of God was being poured out through prophetic utterance right there, right on that day in Jerusalem. So for hundreds of years, since Joel gave this prophecy in, in Joel chapter 2, maybe as many as 800 or 900 years, the prophecy stood, but its fulfillment had not been realized. For hundreds of years, there was never a time from Joel's day through the time of the exile, through the time of the return from Babylon, and all the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, all the days of the prophets through all the way to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, and then those 400 long years after Malachi prophesied and, and before Jesus was born, there was never a time in all of that history, centuries, when the Spirit of God was poured out in the way that Joel prophesied here. There were certain people all throughout those years who were anointed by God, who were filled with the Holy Spirit and enabled and supernaturally empowered to speak his words and to lead the nation, to serve God in all kinds of ways. But there was never this global outpouring on all flesh, bringing about new hearts, new spiritual life, a new covenant of sovereign grace that would, that would start in Jerusalem and then start to flood the whole earth. But in Acts chapter 2, Peter makes it clear by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself, that on that day of Pentecost, on the third day of the third month of the year, on the third hour of the day, which was nine o'clock in the morning, God fulfilled the promise. Listen, Acts 2. There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, something other than any natural sound they'd ever heard. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, 120 followers of Jesus all sitting together. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them prophetic utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, speaking different languages. They'd come all around, from all around, 
for the day of Pentecost. And at this sound of the Holy Spirit being poured out, the, the multitude all came together and they were bewildered, confused, because each one of them was hearing the disciples of Jesus speak in their own language. And they were amazed, they were astonished. They were saying, oh, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we can each hear according to our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judah and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and Libya, Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling us in our own tongues the mighty works of God. How is it possible? Well, it's not according to any power in this world. They were all amazed. They were all perplexed. They, they all said to one another, what, what could this mean? Others were mocking, saying they're, all, they're, they're drunk. They're full of new wine. But Peter, standing with the other 11 apostles of Jesus, lifted up his voice and addressed the crowd and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's nine in the morning. Literally, there hasn't been enough time for them to have drunk enough of the, of the weak wine that was available back then to be drunk yet. Here's what's happening, Peter says. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon will become like blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that, see, that is the great meaning of the outpouring of the Spirit of God that Joel prophesied and that, and that Peter proclaimed was fulfilled right there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It was, it was signaled, its coming was, was identified by the outpouring of, of prophetic utterances, just like Peter says in Acts chapter 2 there. But that manifestation of the Spirit's power, the, the prophesying, that was just the indication that the fulfillment had actually come. The true impact of it, though, the real importance of it, though, wasn't just in that initial indicator of the prophetic utterances, it was in the fullness of what God had said through the prophets. Now was the time where on a global scale, people were being saved from sin. Unlike any time before, now was the time where in a global sense, people were going to be given new hearts like Ezekiel prophesied, new life spiritually, supernaturally by the outpouring of the Spirit of the Lord, being made to be new creations in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, so that blind eyes would be opened spiritually, so that spiritually dead souls would come to life and be made able to love God, to trust God, to honor God, to obey God, to glorify God, just like Jeremiah prophesied. Hard hearts would be made supernaturally soft by the power of the Holy Spirit on a global scale. Look, you, you look all throughout the Old Testament. Israel, as God's chosen nation, was, Isaiah said, supposed to be a light unto the nations. And the light is always supposed to shine the brightest in the darkness, right? And there's a lot of darkness in the world in the Old Testament. Pagan nations of every ilk, committing idolatry of every kind and immorality of every inconceivable kind darkness spiritually over the whole earth except for the light of Israel. And even in Israel, they let their light flicker and wane, didn't they? They let the darkness overwhelm them. The knowledge of God was not covering the earth as the water covers the sea. 
And then Jesus came. And then the Holy Spirit was poured out. And then from Jerusalem to Judea to the nations, the light started to spread. People from every tribe and country started to be saved. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, children started to be raised to newness of life in Christ Jesus because the outpouring of the Spirit had come. And the time had come when literally anybody from anywhere in the world who called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. Now I want you to notice one thing as I was reading those words of Peter in Acts chapter 2 and as he was quoting Joel's prophecy here. Look at verse 28 here of Joel chapter 2. When Joel prophesied of this outpouring of the Spirit of the Lord, he just says that it will come afterward. There in verse 28, right? After the locust plague that happened in his day. After the restoration of the locust plague. There's coming a day sometime. And it would be hundreds of years later when this outpouring of the Spirit will occur. But Peter, hundreds of years later, when he's quoting these verses from Joel on the day of Pentecost and saying that this prophecy was being fulfilled on that day, Peter didn't say afterward like Joel says. When Peter quoted it, he said, it will happen in the last days. And the word last means final. That's significant. That's important. Because Peter understood that this great outpouring of God's Spirit would, in fact, mark the beginning of what the New Testament calls the last days. Look, we're not waiting for the last days to start. We're living in them and have been for the last 2,000 years. The pouring out of God's Spirit at Pentecost was the beginning of the, the last days. It indicated nothing less than the fact that the final chapter of God's history and purposes for this world has begun. With the birth and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. The reality is this, Christians, that the only thing that remains to be fulfilled in God's eternal prophetic plans and purposes for this present world is the return of Jesus on the great and awesome day of the Lord. What, what Peter didn't know and couldn't there on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 was when exactly the great and final day of the Lord would be. But he knew they were living in the last chapter. What he didn't know was when the rest of the prophecy of Joel would be fulfilled, right? The things that Joel talks about in verses 30 and 31 and 32. Those images, the blood and the fire and the smoke and the darkening of the sun and the turning of the, the, the moon to blood, those are, are apocalyptic images of the most vivid kind. Similar to what happened in the book of Exodus when the people came out of Egypt, Right? There was blood of a Passover lamb which indicated that God was, was protecting his people from the wrath that was being poured out on the Egyptians. And then he led them as a, as a pillar of fire by night indicating his presence with them. And there was smoke when they came to Mount Sinai that enveloped the whole mountain and, and manifested the terrifying reality of God's holiness and power as he came from heaven into this world. Joel's saying there's coming another day when, when all of that's going to happen again. When the all-consuming power of God's holiness will be put on display. And the sun will be blacked out. The moon will be turned blood red. Jesus spoke of those same things in Matthew 24 and said that would mark the time of his return. The book of Revelation talks about those things happening with the final outpouring of God's judgment in this world. That day's coming. Joel says that those things will happen in advance of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And didn't we just learn a couple weeks ago? Especially from Peter's words in 2 Peter 3. That the great and awesome coming day of the Lord is the second coming of Jesus. And with him all of the full and the final outpouring of the wrath and the judgment of God, which will consume, remember, the whole heavens and the whole earth, and dissolve it all with fire so that nothing's left. 
except a new heavens and a new earth that God will create in their place. And all the people who dwell there with him forever, who are those who called upon the name of the Lord and were saved. See, what Joel didn't know hundreds of years before Christ and the fulfillment of this prophecy at Pentecost in Acts 2, what Joel didn't know was that in between the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and these signs and wonders on heaven and on earth, with the second coming of Christ and the great and awesome day of God's final judgment, that in between those would be a span of time that so far has been 2,000 years. But Peter understood. He didn't know how long, but he said, there's going to be a time when people can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And that doesn't mean, no matter how long that time goes on, it doesn't mean that God is slow to fulfill his promise of Christ returning. It means that he's patient. 2,000 years, that's how patient God has been so far, see? In prolonging the time where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Saved from the great and awesome day of the Lord. Saved from the terrible and eternal wrath of God that is to come. That day of the Lord will come. That day of the Lord could come any day. There's nothing holding it back except for the great patience and mercy of God who desires for all to come to repentance. There are no more prophecies that have to be fulfilled before this one is. Every day since that day of Pentecost in Acts 2 is a favorable day where the gates of salvation are wide open for all who would come. And every single day could be the final day, could be the last day before the return of Christ. Every single day, think about it, could be the last day for people in this world to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. What if you knew that today was the last day? That tomorrow Jesus would return before the sun came up. And that this was the final day for sinners to call on his name and be saved before he came. What would you do today? How would you spend your day? That's the reality. Very often we don't live like that's the reality, but that's the reality. The day of the Lord is coming, Peter says in 2 Peter 3. So what sort of people ought we to be given that reality? In light of the lost out there and in light of the way that we're living in this world. How should we live, Peter asks, in holiness and godliness in light of the reality of the coming day of the Lord? What sort of people ought we to be? What sort of lives ought we to be living in light of the reality of what we are now? Now that the Spirit has been poured out on us and we've been given these new hearts, God's law has been written on our hearts. We've been raised to newness of life in Christ. We've been born again of water and spirit. We've been made to be supernaturally new creations in Him in an unprecedented kind of way. How should we be living like we used to before that happened. Like, like the world lives for the same values and desires and ambitions that this world has, uh, according to the same ideas of what's right and wrong that this world has. Or like the radically new creations that we are. Paul says in Ephesians 5, look carefully to how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise and making the best use of the time, literally redeeming the time that you have in this world because these days are evil. So, in closing, just ask yourself that today. Are you living in light of the new creation that you are, that you have been made to be by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit? Are you living in light of the reality of your new nature in Christ Jesus? Are you living in light of the reality that sin can no longer have dominion over you? That even though sin remains in you, it doesn't reign over you. It can't make you obey. That you have now been given the supernatural ability to vanquish sin, to say no to sin, to turn from sin, to flee from sin, to mortify sin, and to live in holiness and for the glory of God. 
Are we living in light of the reality that, that these are the last days? That there, there are no more chapters after this one? Are we living in light of the reality that the great and the awesome day of the Lord's coming is at hand and that it is nearer and nearer every passing day? Or are we still stuck in this world just living for self? Doing what we want to do, doing what sounds fun to us and living for all of the passing pleasures of this world. How should we then live? What sorts of people ought we to be? Look carefully to how you walk. Redeem the time because... The days are evil. Will you pray with me today? That God will give us the grace, the wisdom, the courage, and the strength to live according to these realities and to redeem the time. Our God and our Father, would you help us understand who we are in Christ Jesus, what we are as a result of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has caused us to be given new hearts, new spirits, new life, that has caused your law to be written on our hearts, that has opened our eyes to the fact of your glory and your love and your grace and your holiness, and to the fact, Father, of your coming purposes of judgment and wrath upon this whole world. Father, would you help us? Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Would you give us a sense of urgency to live in light of all of this reality, to resist temptation, to put away the desires of the flesh, to crucify sin wherever it remains in us, to not let it reign over us, to not deceive ourselves into thinking that it has some power to make us and compel us to obey its evil desires. Father, would you help us to recognize that having been made alive in Christ, he is now our Lord and Master. And his holiness has dominion over us. And Father, would you teach us how to walk in step with the service to which he calls us of his kingdom. Father, use your church. Grow your church. Cause the light to shine brighter and brighter in this world. And glorify yourself by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.